Well, we did. We got that word early this morning that um, Brian's mom had passed away. And um, if you're visiting or if you don't know us, um, you know, my, my, my wife and I, Kim, share grandchildren um, with Kim Pritchett. And um, I, I got to see Brian this morning. I just wrap my arms around him and hug him. And so there's going to be tears this week. And as a church family, we'll, we'll grieve with Brian and Kaylee and, and encourage them. And some of you have, are already doing that. So I want to say thank you on their behalf because I know Meals have been sent, as his mom was in hospice, and, and I just I, I know you guys have been thinking and praying for them, and even um, sending food to them, and ministering to them. So thank you. So I could get out of this by repeating what 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 Pat said. Paul says we didn't we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That is, those who have died in Christ that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. But this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ, in Christ, the dead in Christ, will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, therefore, Paul says, encourage one another with these words. So we're going to get a chance to encourage Brian and Kaylee and the whole family um, this week and the weeks to come. Um, um, so thank you in advance, because I know um, this church family will do that and does that. Uh, turn in your Bibles to the epistle of 1 John. Last week we were in 1 John. This week we will continue um, where we left off in chapter 2. Um, again, if you're visiting with us, you need to know this, that this church family believes that all Scripture is breathed out or that inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There's teaching, there's instruction, we engage the mind, there's reproof, Sin in our life is identified, and our heart gets engaged. And then there's correction. So our hands and feet say, oh, I've been corrected. I need to turn. I need to turn. I've been reproved. I need to turn and line up with the truth of God's Word. That's correction. And then there's training. Like the athlete, it's rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And the sole purpose of any man that stands here in this pulpit is to point to the person of Jesus Christ. 
That's the goal. And if you hear nothing else, hear that. I'm going to reference different passages. Know this, the scripture is inspired. Not the words that I say, but the scripture. So it's important that when you're taking notes, and I try to put that on the outline. I have on the outline cross-references, and you see all these passages. So as you go back this week and, and review, maybe if you review the message, those passages are there for you to go back and review um, in, in, to, to line up with the things that I'm saying. So do that study, I encourage you this week. Also know this, if you're visiting us, that no prophecy or no proclamation of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. This is 2 Peter 1. For no prophecy or proclamation was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's only one proper interpretation of Scripture. And it's not, well, what does it mean to me? That's not what it's about. It's what is the author intending to communicate to me. And that author is the Holy Spirit, who superimposed these authors like like you would pick up a crayon using their personalities and wrote out what God wanted to communicate and reveal to us about himself. I like what Dr. Barnhouse said. He said this, I, this, the older generation, if you're my generation, you'll know the name Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, right? He said this, you, you can weigh a theological truth that's proclaimed, or you can interpret Scripture by putting it on the scales of glory. Putting it on the scales of glory. If it elevates man in any way, reject it. Right? But elements, man, in any way, if the interpretation somehow rationalizes my sin or what I do to somehow make me feel better about myself, <clears throat> reject it. But if it demonstrates the depravity of man and his need for the Savior and elevates Christ, accept it, embrace it. That's the scale of glory that we measure all of God's Word on. Does it glorify God? Does it glorify God? So, as you're turning, I'm going to read. We're going to, we'll just start. It's a, Chapter 1 is so short, it helps us. Actually, I'm going to read starting in chapter 1. But here's the main point. Okay, so if you have an outline, the main point is already on there for you. Here's the main point of the message today. Each tree is known by its fruit. Now, if you have the handout, you can see that's not a main point that I came up with. <laughs> Those are the words of Jesus Christ. But that is the main point, I think, of what John is communicating to us in his word uh, this morning. So let's read that, if you will. First John, uh, we'll start in chapter 1, verse 1. We will read uh, through uh, chapter 2 through verse 6. Our primary text is going to be verses 3 through 6 of chapter 2. So as I come, kind of come to the end of the reading, no, that's where our focus is going to be this morning, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we, which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship 
is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, John says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in him, that is in Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which he, that is Christ, walked. Amen? Our audience again, that John is writing to in this epistle, are believers. He affectionately addresses them as little children. But know this, in this audience, there are false teachers. There are unbelievers. And so John is drawing some very bright lines to distinguish between those who know him, know Christ, and those who do not. And these false teachers were claiming to know Christ, to know God, but were walking in darkness and sin. And John starts out the first chapter by saying, you have the real thing. Walk in the reality of that truth. And what is that real thing? Jesus Christ is the real thing. That which we was from the beginning, which we've heard, and which we've seen with our eyes and looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life. That's Jesus Christ which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. It's the person of Jesus Christ and Him alone that is eternal life. A life that has given us a restored relationship with God through His Son. You, and we said this when we looked at the first chapter. You cannot separate fellowship with God from fellowship with one another. Because our fellowship with one another is the expression of who we are in Christ. Easy to say, hey, I know God, and treat your brother poorly. You can't separate the two. You can't say, I know God. I love God, but I don't love my brother. And John repeats that over and over and over again in this uh, passage. John goes on to, to tell his readers, there's only one true reality. And that reality is described and defined by the Creator Himself. God is light, John says, and in Him there is no darkness at all. There's two kinds of people. Those who walk 
in the light and those who walk in darkness. And there is no middle ground. Those who walk in the light, John says, enjoy two things. They enjoy that fellowship with God. And they enjoy an ongoing cleansing that comes from walking in the light. As we walk in the light, sin is exposed. And as we confess that sin, there's there's this ongoing cleansing that's taking place in our lives. So enjoy that fellowship with God and that cleansing. We should expect that to happen if we're walking in the light of God's Word. For those who walk in darkness, they deny the presence of sin. And you know what? When they deny sin, when you deny sin, we deny the necessity of the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. John says, for those who say, I know God, but walk in darkness, they're deceived. They're liars. They live a life, John says, of self-deception. They ultimately declare God a liar because it's the reality that God defines versus the reality that you're trying to define And you're calling a God a liar when you declare any other reality than the one he has given us. Man, by his nature, is a God-hater and a self-lover. Man denies absolute truth because he denies the absolute truth giver. Where there is no absolute truth, There is no absolute right or wrong. Therefore, there is no sin. And where there is no sin, there is no need for reconciliation through the work of Christ on the cross. Man has said in his heart, I will be my own God. Isn't that what the enemy told Adam and Eve? You can be just like God. You can be your own God. Isn't that what the culture around you is saying when you turn on the news? You can define your own reality. That's what the enemy is telling us each and every day. But those who walk in the light of God's truth, they see sin for what it is. It's a defamation of the person and character of God. Therefore, confession is necessary in the life of believers. Because we do sin. We still have the sin nature. Not bound by it, no longer. Freed from that by the blood of Christ. But we still have that until we die. And then we lose that. The resurrection of Christ, we won't have that. And that will be a glorious thing. Here's what we said about, about uh, the passage in 1 in John 1, 1.9 that we know so well. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's what we concluded about that. Forgiveness and cleansing are not dependent upon confession. But confession of sin is an ongoing part of the sanctification and it gives evidence of our walk in the truth of God's Word. And I made that distinction. I made that distinction. Um, by, we did that by looking at the two verb tenses in, in, that, in that verse. We won't do that. You can go back and listen to that. But confession is something that is an outflow of our walk in the light of God's Word. And a life marked by confession differentiates those from those who walk in the light and those who walk in darkness. Where there is confession of sin, you can be assured there's walking in the light. 
where there's no confession of sin. Do you know people who are just like, nah, nothing here, no sin here, I'm not guilty. There's no walking in the light. Because that's what light does, it exposes sin in our lives. We defined, we defined several terms um, last week. Um, I won't go back over that. We defined truth, we defined light, we defined walking in light, practicing the truth, darkness, light. Here, the, the two words that I just want to kind of reiterate for us here as we go, as we now look at um, this passage is that truth is, the, is God's revelation of himself, both in his word and most perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. That is what is true. And God defines truth because God is light. And sin, we said, because sin is, sin is, sin is a topic here in these passages. Sin is more than the sum of its consequences. Hear me on that. I really want you to hear that because we get that confused. It's, just not the, it's not just the consequences of sin that define sin. Sin is a defamation of the character of God. We rebel against God. It's like graffiti on the image bearers. We defame the name of God when we sin. And that's what we need to remind ourselves when we do sin. That's what should grieve us, not the consequences. We shouldn't be grieved by the consequences of sin. That'll happen. We should be grieved because of what sin does. Okay, so in chapter 2, John then reminds us that we have forgiveness and cleansing. It belongs to us because of who we are in Christ. Paul makes this, and, and Paul, and, and John goes on to say, he says, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. So John is saying, I'm, I'm writing these, but, but don't, the forgiveness and the cleansing that we have in Christ, don't use that as an excuse for sinning. And Paul makes that same argument in Romans 5 and Romans 6, where he declares the grace of God greater than all our sin. But, but don't conclude, well then, sin all the more because grace all the more. Both John, both the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul would say, God forbid, may it never be. Grace is not a license to sin. To the contrary, for those who walk in fellowship with God, the more we are conformed to the image of Christ and to his sinlessness. That's what we want to mirror and image the world around us. We've been created to reflect God's image. Therefore, we are to be holy as God is holy. Leviticus 11.45. This was true for Israel. Leviticus 11.45. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1.14 and 15. Two for the New Testament saints as well. As obedient children, Peter says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. But again, as long as we live in this flesh, we still will battle with sin. We have a sin nature. But for those who've been regenerated, who've been born again by the Holy Spirit, we're no longer slaves to that sin nature. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. He says this, One of the marks of a child of God is that although he sins, he does not love sin. He may fall into sin, but he's like a sheep, which if it tumbles into the mud, 
is quickly up again, for it hates the mire. The sow, on the other hand, wallows where the sheep is distressed. End quote. And so we do sin, and yet, and, but John says we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, the sinless Son of God. And this advocate is no ordinary advocate. No longer is he the sinless Son of God, but he is the propitiation for our sins. So we answered this question last week. Why do we need an advocate? Why do we need an advocate? I hope that answer is swirling around in your mind. Because we have an accuser, Satan. We have an accuser. Does Satan have any grounds upon which to accuse us? If you're in Christ, does Satan have any grounds to accuse? No. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul says. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, Paul says. It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised and who was at the right hand of God and who intercedes for us. Then why does God allow Satan to accuse us? Did you get that main point last week? Why does God allow Satan to accuse us? Well, we said last week that each time the accuser comes before the throne of God to accuse us, God is glorified. It's an amazing thing to me. God is glorified. Satan has been utterly defeated at the cross, and he's reminded of that defeat every time he accuses me and accuses you. He's reminded of his defeat, and, he's and all of the universe declares the glory of Jesus Christ. Um, I don't know, anybody here listened to the Al Mohler's podcast, The Briefing? A couple of you, just some of us old guys. I saw one, I saw oh, some young guys. All right, all right. Well, Friday, I like Fridays because it's when he answers questions. So um, listeners write in, will write in with questions and he answers those. And those are always pretty interesting. And a lot of times he includes, includes young children who, who will write in and say something. So if you get a chance and you want to kind of verify what I'm saying, you can go back to last Friday and see. But the question from an 11-year-old, I think he said, was, why does God allow sin to continue? Why does God allow sin to continue? And I thought it was so appropriate because we just talked about that last Sunday. And Al Mohler gave a, a brief explanation. But in the end, he said this. It can all be summed up with this. He said, for the glory of God. That's why sin is allowed to continue for God's glory. John says in verse 12 of the same chapter, chapter 2, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, for the glory of Jesus Christ. So in our text this morning, we want, to, we want to just look at these three verses. And by this we know that we have come to know him, John says, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. How can we know that we have a relationship with God? How can we know that we are in Christ? John says, 
By your walk. By your walk. By this we know that we have come to know him, John says, if we keep his commandments. Circle the word we there. It's plural. Here's the first, here's the first point I want to make. First, first, first lesson. Our faith, our relationship with Christ is a public faith. It's a public, it's a public faith. It's a faith that can be observed by others for the glory of God. There's no such thing as a secret Christian. No such thing. I remember years ago, back when I first started um, in the career that I'm in now, um, um, I had a boss that was a believer. And we were, we were flying, I think we were flying to Chicago. We were going to go see um, some of the senior executives at, uh, this, uh, at this company. And he, and he kind of gave me the profile on each one, right? He was trying to prepare me. Here's, you know, this, this guy, you know, these people, this is what they're like. And, and he told me about one guy. He says, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's a bleeder. He said, but he doesn't wear his Christianity on his sleeve. And I thought to myself, well, where does he wear it? If it's not on his sleeve, what is he talking about? I guess he was one of those secret Christians. His faith was a proclamation, maybe, to some, but it wasn't public in his walk. I'll never forget that. I remember that was 30, 40 years ago. I'll just never forget that. The evidences of our faith are a public display. In John 13, the Gospel of John 13, Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, by what? Our love for one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Although we cannot see into the heart of a man, only God knows what's in the heart of the man. The heart is revealed by the fruit that it produces. And John says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. You know, both the English, in both the English and the Greek language, there's a multiple um, what they call types or classes of conditional statements. Now, in the Greek, there are different words that indicate the type of conditional statement. So it's a little easier if you know Greek. I don't know Greek. In the English, you have to look at the context to understand what kind of conditional statement it is. Let me give you an example. Here's a, here's a conditional statement. If you do your homework, you can go out and play. Have you ever heard that one, Baptist? Have you heard that? Yeah. If you do your homework, you can go out and play. That's a conditional statement. It says, if you do something, then this will follow. A different conditional statement would be, like, would be something like this. And that, that's the one we tend to think of. If we read it in Scripture, we tend to think that something, a conditional statement, is something we always have to do to earn this. And we live in a culture that's all merit-based, right? Everything, everything we're surrounded with is merit-based. We always think, oh, i got to do this to please God. Or to, it's, it, but that's not the conditional kind of statement that John is using here when he says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Let me give you another example. Let's say that outside of this church building, there's a large garden, and in that garden are various types of fruit trees. Okay, you with me? If I said, hey, let's all go out and meet under the orange tree. We're all going to, okay, 
maybe we'd have to be in Florida. But if I said, let's all go out and meet under the orange tree. It's the season, right? There's fruit. That's, let's go out and meet there. How would you know which tree to stand under? You'd look for that, wouldn't you? You'd be looking for that. We could say, if the fruit on its branches are oranges, it's an orange tree. Or we could use it like John says. By this we'll know it's an orange tree if it bears oranges, right? Now, I know, I know my grandkids would love to, they, they love to do stuff like this, but they love to go get a basket of oranges like this and go find an oak tree out there and tie these up on the oak tree and, and, then, um, and then put a sign at the bottom that says orange tree. Now, let me ask you this. Does that make it an orange tree? It's got oranges on it. There's a sign that says, I'm an orange tree. Now, you know better than that. We can't get the root mixed up with the fruit. It's an orange tree. It produces orange. When it's not an orange tree, it doesn't. Jesus said it like this in Luke chapter 6. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Jesus tells us that a tree is identified by the fruit that it bears. Charles Spurgeon says this. I'm sorry, I see, I've seen these all throughout the weeks. So I thought, oh, that's a good quote. Here, here's another Charles Spurgeon quote. He says this. So then, dear friends, these good works must be in the Christian. They are not the root, but the fruit of his salvation. They, and I'll insert good works, they are not the way of a believer's salvation. They are his walk in the way of salvation. Where there is healthy life in a tree, the tree will bear fruit according to its kind. So if God has made the nature good, the fruit will be good. But if the fruit be evil, it's because the tree is what it always was, an evil tree. The desire of men created anew in Christ is to be rid of every sin. That should be our desire. We do sin, but we do not love sin. Sin gets power over us sometimes to our sorrow. But it is a kind of death to us to feel that we have gone into sin. Do you feel that way sometimes? You should. Yet it shall not have dominion over us, for we are not under the law, but under grace. And therefore, we shall conquer it and get victory over it, end quote. And I will just add to his statement, because of who we are in Christ. I know he said that, but just so it is clearly understood. So principle number two, here's principle number two. Obedience to the commands of Christ are an expression of who we are in Christ. Obedience to the commands of Christ. Obedience is not a condition of our position in Christ, but an expression of our position in Christ. You see the difference? 
a couple of nods of heads. I get, I, I get the difference. For those who are in Christ, the commands are not restrictive. When we read the commands of God, they're not restrictive. They're not a burden to us. They are reflective. They are an expression of who we are in Christ. Because a true relationship with God finds its expression in obedience to the Word of God. And when we get that, it changes everything. When we understand that, it changes everything. We cannot live in obedience to Christ without a relationship with Christ. That's the root. That's the root. And we cannot live in relationship with Christ without being changed by Christ. Production of fruit in our lives. That, John says, is walking in the light. Think about this. What is a command? What is a command? It's an authoritative direction or instruction to act in a particular way, right? Now, I, I threw a word in there that you might not normally have put in there for a reason, but it's an authoritative instruction. It's a direction given by one who has authority. It could be said in the positive. Honor your father and your mother. It could be said in the positive. It could be said in the negative. You shall not steal. Those are all command. Those are both commands, right? One in the positive, one in the negative. But a couple observations about commandment, and I've already alluded to this. Every commandment originates from an authority. Every commandment originates from it has origin. Take away the authority from any command, and it becomes just a suggestion. That's all it is. Just a suggestion. If there is no authority behind it, and every command reflects the identity and the character of that authority. It has purpose. It reflects the identity or character of the authority who gives that command. All right, another illustration for my grandchildren. Um, um, I'll say this. Uh, let's see. I mean, I'll pick on somebody. Bravery, I'll pick on you. Okay, so you guys are all, play- you're all, you're all out playing in the woods in Tawson. Tawson's the name of the little town they have um, by this little creek that they play. So it's it's a great town. If you don't know about Tawson, uh, and don't ask me how I got that name. Um, so anyway, you guys are all playing. Okay, all you guys are playing in Tawson, right? Emerson, where's Emerson? I don't see Emerson. Emerson, there's Emerson. Emerson comes, comes through the yard and she says, and she says to Colton, let's say, okay, so I'm gonna, I'll switch this to, your, to her brother, Colton. She says to Colton, Colton, go clean your room. What is the first thing, Colton, what is the first thing you said when your sibling came up to you and said, hey, go do this? Says who? Says who? By what authority are you telling me I need to go clean my room? Well, Emerson would say, because mom said. Now, if that didn't motivate Colton, a dad says might motivate him a little more but I'll tell you, it comes with the same authority, right? It has, every command has authority. And every command has purpose. Why is it, why is it that, we, that, that, that Stephanie might say, hey, go tell Colton he needs to clean his room? Why would she say that? Why would that command come back? Most likely because cleanliness and orderliness or I can't say orderly. Someone say for orderliness. Thank you. Is a characteristic of that family. We keep our house in order and it's clean. Now, if you know Cameron, you know there's a lot behind that statement. 
But that is the identity. That's part of the identity of this family. And so that command is reflective of the authority that issues that command. What you believe about origin and what you believe about purpose defines your worldview. The world says this, there is no God, there is no origin. There is no absolute authority in my life. The world says there's no ultimate purpose. There's no ultimate meaning. If there is no ultimate authority, how could there be an ultimate purpose or an ultimate meaning in life? The world says there's no absolute truth. There's no right or wrong. I'll do what I want to do. You can't tell me what to do. But with the world, there is no hope. Life is meaningless because there are no rules of the ones I make up for myself. The Bible says there's only one God. God reigns supremely as the sole authority. The Bible says there's meaning and there's purpose in life. And what is it? To bring glory to God. That's the purpose of life. And the Bible says there's absolute truth. And Jesus is a source of that truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the Bible says there is hope. Our hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. The natural world was created by the spoken word of God. And the natural world is governed by the physical laws that God has established. You think those just came from nowhere? Paul says this in Romans 1, talking about, well, I'll just, I'll read a little. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There is no God. For what can be known about God is plain as day to them. I added the plain as today to them. It's plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they will stand before God without an excuse. Even nature itself declares the character of God. The physical laws, the physical laws of nature declare the glory of God. Take away the physical laws of nature and you have chaos. Chaos. God's laws, both physical and spiritual, are good because they reflect the person and the character of God. In the Old Testament, we see God giving the nation of Israel the Mosaic law, commands that govern the nation for the purpose of reflecting God's character to the nations around them. The psalmist says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of all nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All of the ends of the earth have seen, hear that? 
all of the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of the Lord of the Lord, of, of our God. The Old Testament laws were given to the nation of Israel so that she might reflect the glory of God to the nations around her. And for the New Testament saints, the commands of Christ have been given so that we might reflect who we are in Christ for all to see. When, and, and hear me on this. When we act in obedience to God's commands, we do what God has designed us to do. We reflect His character. Because a command, because a command is an authoritative directive, you cannot disconnect the authority from the commands. Hear me on this. You cannot connect the authority of those commands from the commands themselves. Jesus said this, I am the true vine, John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're, you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, Jesus says, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And so I think, I think this passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, is in his mind as John is writing these epistles to these believers. He says, by this you know that you have come to know him if you keep his commandments. John goes on to say, whoever says that I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, for the truth is not in him. Whoever does not keep his commandments, there's no fruit, is a liar. Why? Because the truth is not in him. There's no root. It's not an orange tree. But whoever keeps his word, John says, in him, truly, the love of God is perfected. Keeps. We've talked about tenses in a lot of these verbs that we've been going through here in First John. Again, it is the present tense. It's ongoing. When we talk about keeps, we're talking about holding fast. Holding fast to something. It's continuous. It's like our walk. It's a continuous. Our walk in the truth of God's word. And so we keep his word. The love of God. Here John connects our obedience to the commands of God with the love of God. We'll talk about that the next time we come back to this passage. We're going to talk about the connection, the commands of God, and the love of God and the love for one another. Is perfected. 
Let me just say this, because we'll talk about this later in the next message. It is perfected. In the Greek, it's passive. I contribute nothing to this. It is all a work of God. It's indicative. It's, it, in other words, it's who I am in Christ. It's who I am in Christ. By this, we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. Verse 6. Ought. It's not an obligation. It's not that kind of ought. It's an ought. It's a necessary expectation. You walk out to pick an orange from an orange tree, there ought to be oranges on that orange tree. Abide in me and I in you, Jesus said. A branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. And by this, Jesus said, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. A quick, quick application. I just have a couple minutes. Quick application. One of the main points is here. One of the points I'm trying to make is you cannot disconnect the giver of the law from the law itself. You cannot disconnect a relationship with God from the commands of God. What happens when you do that? Okay? What, ha- what does that look like if we do that? Number one on the list Legalism. Legalism. Legalism is a self-righteous adherence to the law. The self-righteous legalist uses the laws of God to maximize self-edification. They neither, that is the legalist, neither understand the letter of the law, nor do they understand the intent of the law, because they do not know the law giver. Jesus said this in John 5, in talking to the religious leaders of Israel, he said, you search the scriptures. There's the, com- the commands of God would be there. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me, Jesus said, that you may have life. You want to have the fruit without the root. Without the root. The religious elite of Christ's time had disconnected the law of God from the very God who gave them that law. They rejected the law giver. And think about this. For the legalist, isn't this true? It's easier to love rules than to love people. I mean, or is it just me, right? Isn't it easier to love rules than to love people? Because people are messy, and people are imperfect. And somehow, the legalist thinks, we can straighten that up. We just got to follow these rules. Without the relationship, it doesn't work. Apart from a restored relationship through the person of Jesus Christ, the commands of Christ are restrictive. They're not expressive. And think about this, too. The legalist is a lonely person. The legalist is a lonely person. They're caught up in a world of self-exaltation. Legalism is a self-righteousness that uses rules and commands to build walls that separate the legalist from both the relationship with God and relationship with one another. Hear me on that? We can use God's laws to do that, to just build walls when we separate those commands of God from God himself. Here's a second pitfall. 
The second pitfall is this. When we disconnect the commands of God from God himself, from the lawgiver, we, we can, I'm going to use, I'm going to use a, this is like a seminary word or a theologian word. We, we fall into antinomianism. Okay, now, I know that sounds like a big word. It's like, leave that to professors. Let's call it this anti-lawism. I mean, anti-against-nomian lawism is all that matters to me. Right? That's three parts. I'm against the law. That's the, that's the slogan I live by. It's like the Outback Steakhouse, right? What's their slogan? No rules, right? <laughs> no rules. I'm free to do as I please. It's really, in a sense, it's a self-righteous dismissal of the commands of God. Today we express antinomianism, and we disguise it under a label of grace. Don't bother me with the commands of Christ. I'm just under grace. I'm a grace person. The laws, you know, I, you know, I can just, I just live under grace. I do as I please. I just live under grace. That's antinomianism. Separates the laws from the lawgiver. This is what Jesus said. You th- he said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they disconnect the law from the law giver. You cannot do it. And Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you do not do what I tell you. And just like legalism, anti-lawism, antinomianism leads to isolation. Isolating us both from God and from one another. The anti-law person is a lonely person. I'm going to do just as I please. What is the right response? Let me close with this. What's the right response? Here's the right response. The right response is this. Joyful obedience. That's the right response. I don't, I, I'm looking at my handout. Boy, put a place for that. I, 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 I didn't put that in, under there. But the right response, there we go, is, is a joyful obedience. I obey because of who I am in Christ. And I take great joy in reflecting His character. That's the fruit. And why? For His glory. Jesus lived in complete submission and obedience to the commands of his Father. And he did so for the glory of God. Jesus did what Adam failed to do. And it's because of Jesus' atoning work on the cross that we've been reconciled to God so that we might be free to do what we were originally created to do. And that is bring glory to God expressed in our obedience to those commands. For by this, my Father is glorified, Jesus said, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, there's the expression where we abide 
you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. For the true believer in Christ, one who's walking in fellowship with God, living in obedience to the commands of Christ, are an expression of who we are in Christ. And in doing so, we bring glory to God. John says, and by this we know. You can know. You can be certain. We can know as a body that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. For whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he 